I see this one particular cloud, I head for it, and sure enough, you know, start getting a good climb. As I'm getting towards the base, I start heading towards the edge. So, whoop, boom, you're in the cloud. And for the next two and a half minutes, I'm in the cloud. Once I was up on top, it was uh, classic Owens Valley soaring conditions here. Tops of the clouds at 17,000, cloud streets marking all of the lift. In the attempt to make soaring an Olympic sport, a demonstration was organized by the International Olympic Committee at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. This is Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Thank you, Michelle, and thank you for joining us. I am excited to share with you more soaring adventures. And if you are a Patreon pilot, of course, you already know what's coming up on this episode. Just one of the perks when you contribute to the show. If you're able to do that and you would like to help us bring you more great soaring content, you can visit patreon.com slash soaringthesky, or of course, you can click on the link in the show notes there. You can also visit our website for more options as well. Today, our guest pilot, Kempton Izuno, is back with some crazy stories and experiences he has had in the cockpit. I especially love the story that he was telling me. This one is nuts. I mean, he literally gets sucked up into a thunderstorm and is there for two and a half minutes. I don't want to get ahead of myself on this one, but you are really going to love this. Also, our soaring reporter, Christopher Stevenson, he's been out and about and has chatted with some pilots at the Soar Safari there in Lone Pine, California. So we have those for you on this episode, too. You know, this week I was watching the Olympics, and Sergio, the soaring master, our friend in Brazil, he emailed me and he asked if I knew about the history of soaring in the Olympics. I had no idea there was ever soaring in the Olympics. So he's offered to tell us that story too. Thank you, Sergio, for sharing that with us. I want to take a minute and thank and tell you about our newest sponsor, Wings and Wheels. They've been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for more than 30 years now. They have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplanes and soaring supplies in the U.S. Nearly everything you find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. They're proud to be an exclusive American representative for HPH LTD, manufacturer of the finest quality sailplanes. The HPH Twin Shark is the newest 20-meter two-place sailplane on the market. Their staff has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes, staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. You can bet a friendly voice will answer when you call. They're located in Eagle, Idaho in their new commercial building with warehouse built to their specifications. And that was completed this year. Whether shipping domestic or international, your soaring-related supply list is covered. They would love for you to come and visit the next time you're in the Boise area. You can check them out on wingsandwheels.com. We're super excited to have them on the pod. Kempton Izuno, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thanks, Chuck. Glad to be here, and it's I'm looking forward to it. I think it's been, let's see, episode 75 when I was looking it up today. I think it was late late summer last year, right? It was just around this time, right. You know, you're thinking in terms of episodes as you're marking up time, and yeah. Right. So there you go. <laughs> so you're just recently back from the 20-meter standard class nationals in Montague, right? Right, right. The two classes, the 20-meter two-seater and the standards. And it sounds like things went semi-okay-ish for your team. Well, yes, it was. Uh, we, we won uh, the 20-meter uh, class. I was the backseater for John Cochran. Uh, and to be full disclosure, uh, Rick Walter, or Rick Injerbo was coming off of his 15-meter uh, Minden win, so he certainly set the pace there. And my job was kind of basically just to keep the lead and not screw up. Nice. Well, how about just take our listeners through some of the highlights and your takeaways from the week. And feel free to also give a shout out to anybody that you'd like to give a shout out to or organizers. And you can even talk some smack if you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that. It was uh, it, just as context. It was my first nationals. Um, I did a little few regional small competitions in my label back in the 90s or so. But I'm kind of not a competition pilot. Uh, but 
when the opportunity opened up because they needed somebody else to cover for a Rick in the back seat in an ASG 32, I said, well, heck yeah. And I had the time fortunately open uh, in between work. So uh, I jumped on it. So we were flying Whiskey Sierra, the uh, Williams soaring actually ASG 32. So it's well equipped. Uh, they use it for motor glider checkouts and cross country. So this was uh, mid June and I flew five days uh, with John Cochran, who some people know he writes papers on McCready theory and he's also often in the top 10 uh, for, for a national contest. So typical day, I'm a hotel guy, so I stayed in the Holiday Inn there, which is probably about a 15-minute drive to the airport. I'm, I don't do campers, and I mean, I have done actually like camping, but especially for something like this, I want to be comfortable, and a lot of that comes down to the sleep. So I'm a, I want to make sure I get my sleep. I'm up at 6.30. Um, it was really warm up there, not Uvalde humid warm, but it would get that pretty hot on the tarmac. So it was important for me to make sure my drinks were chilled. And then I would have these, I actually bought this vest with these ice packs in it, you know, to wear under my t-shirt just to keep me cool. Cause I just get so hot so easily. Grab breakfast and be at the airport by 8.30. Not that there was any meetings then, but I just wanted to be out there just to kind of, you know, it's, it's great being out at the airport, you know, talk to people and socialize. 10 o'clock pilot meeting, uh, there were about 15, uh, 12 20-meter ships, about 10 20-meter ships, and about 14 in the regionals, and about, I think, about 12 or so in the standards. So the, the Region 11 contest was also going on during that time, too. So it was a good uh, collection of uh, people, um, a good number of ships. 10 o'clock pilots meeting. Uh, then afterwards, I talk with John about the day's plans and what, what are the key points. We talk about what we did yesterday and how can we do it better. And then input the task into the ClearNav. Uh, each of us have separate ClearNav flight computers. Then you move the ship down to the taxiway spot uh, and sometimes wait for up to an hour for the grid call, which would be then when we all move them off the sides of the taxiway onto the taxiway. Uh, in a line, we'd be assigned a number uh, for the day that would increment. So in other words, it was the same sequence of pilots and planes, but then we just drop one and you would move up one. So, you know, one day we'd be up at the front of the line and the next day we'd be at the back. So to even out the uh, advantages or disadvantages of that. The key thing was out there was to stay cool because, I mean, it's a 2,500 foot elevation but between the heat uh, from the sun and the tarmac, it would just get so hot out there. And so I'd take an umbrella out there and you know, have the cool, cool packs on me and the towel around my neck. Then they'd send up the sniffer and the sniffer would report back uh, you know, whatever they found. And actually it was two sniffers uh, going up there to check that out. Rex, who was the contacts, contest director, would make the final confirmation of whether it's task A or task B, which usually was more conservative, just in case the day was suddenly not looking as good. Uh, and then we'd launch. Some of us would self-launch because we didn't have uh, all the top planes we wanted. Those of us who could self-launch, like the ASG-32 I was in, would self-launch, and others would take a tow if they wanted to. The launch time would depend, of course, on the lift starting, but because in the middle of the contest, there would be a couple days where we didn't launch until like almost two o'clock. And then the start date wouldn't open until like 310, which for me being a kind of guy that likes to launch late in the morning or mid morning, or, you know, and just get the first lift. This felt really weird. <laughs> so I was like, right. <laughs> hey, okay, okay, I got this. I know it's a race, but it just feels weird. So anyway, so we do that. Um, and once we launched, you'd get up there and then they'd have to wait and make sure everyone, you know, was properly launched and that they were at least able to stay up. So if we were early in the line, then we'd, you know, orbit for a bit. You know, of course, the engine turned off, stowed and find some lift and just basically wait until they give us the 10 minutes to start gate opening call. And up until this point, you just kind of stay cool, maybe try to find a lift. But then once you know the start date gate's going to be open, depending on if we feel the day was going to be like starting or ending early and we just want to get out there, 
or if it's going to go late, then maybe we could let some uh, of the other pilots go out ahead of us to help mark the lift. That would depend on our, our uh, start time. This contest was done under the, what I understand, and I'm not an expert at this, so I think I got this right, is the U.S. rules, which means it was a 10,000-foot cap on the cylinder, the start cylinder, and you had to be two minutes under the 10,000-foot cap before you could then be qualified to leave. So all these okay. extra rules, which, it, you know, for me as being a non-contest pilot, John's explaining all this, and I'm just going, okay, you know, follow along with it. But, uh, okay, fine, I get that. Okay, well, you know, since the next point's closer to this side of the start cylinder, we got to move over to that side of the start cylinder, you know, to save us half a mile or a mile or whatever. You know, and you could see this by all the dots on the floor. You know, we're not the only ones who are thinking this. All these other dots are moving over there. Yeah, right. The cylinder. And then once we start, we're on course for two to four hours, and John was doing most of the flying. I would spot clouds, other gliders, call out targets on the floor. Uh, that kind of thing. So I was more just an extra set of eyes um, and strategic input. And I would fly, I flew only maybe 10% of the time. But it was really enjoyable doing that. That's when I take people up in my ship uh, on two-seat cross-country flights, oftentimes I let the other pilot fly a lot. And I'm just, we're talking about, well, what should we do? You know, this cloud, you know, why that one versus that one? So it was really good. It was really good. Um, each day was a challenge. It went from completely blue days to overdevelopment days. Um, and we ended up the contest, I think, about 100 points uh, in first place. Uh, and it was awesome. Um, not, not the kind of thing I do all the time, but it was just really enjoyable. Uh, just a different kind of flying to, and flying with a lot of other gliders, which when I do my, my cross countries, I hardly ever see anyone. And just, you know, big thank yous to the Mays family. You know, they were all up there running the show. Noel was the manager and, and Ben was a contest pilot. Uh, Nick was up there too, helping to tow and organize and all of their families were up there. Um, it was, it was great. Uh, just a wonderful organization. Um, uh, Dean, uh, sorry, I can't remember Dean's last name. He, he let us borrow his hangar up there, Dean Gradwell. Uh, his hangar it was just beautiful to have that venue looking out onto the uh, Mount Shasta. It was it was great. I highly recommend, especially that location, just because it's very scenic and it's got some great soaring. Oh yeah, it must be absolutely beautiful. Yeah, it's yeah, it was fantastic. Snow, you know, craggy granite, you know, lofting mountains, dry lakes, head up, and and pot farms, tons of pot farms all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you kind of walked us through a typical day just now, but it was one of my uh, my next question, actually. Maybe if you could just reach back and pick one of those days in the Nationals there and maybe take us through it. Sure. So I'm thinking more of probably towards the last day. Uh, the start times would get earlier and earlier because the lift started earlier and earlier, and especially when overdevelopment started creeping into the forecast. I've been posting some of the pictures on Instagram. In fact, on the last day, I posted one of them. And you could just tell by 11 o'clock by the height of the clouds, you're going, you know, this is, it was forecast to overdevelop. And, but you could just look at that and going, yep, it's going to overdevelop. So there was a little bit of urgency, you know, let's get everyone launched and let's get started. And, and it was not a uh, short task. I mean, typically, or not typically, sometimes on last days of contest, they call a shorter task, you know, so people don't land out. But now we're this is going to be you know full size task and I think we were on course for like three and a half hours or so, so uh, people got going, uh, connected with clouds fairly quickly, and it was fairly straightforward. We didn't see too many other gliders, but the uh, Texas group um, Tango X Ray uh, from Texas Soaring Association they had been you know very strong. Uh, Michael Westbrook and Jacob uh, Fairbain really good aggressive flying they landed out on day one but they were climbing the score sheet every day and going into the last day uh, they were only uh, behind by like 100 points or so so it was um, they, they had made up a lot of ground uh, so we were we knew we needed to be competitive and you know push the pedal to the metal but not too hard because of course you know if we got really lower landed out that would that would be bad for the score. So that day we're running along pretty hard. 
meaning like 110 knots between uh, thermals. The, the 32 is a flat ship. And the last, the final glide, we kept it pretty conservative, but uh, we're running you know, now out in the blue for the last hour or so and came back. Uh, we had chose to start early, but mostly to avoid the overdevelopment. That was probably the key strategic decision was to go early because we heard from later um, pilots that one of the turns was indeed under some rain. So, oh wow, yeah, pretty straightforward day. A little bit of lightning, you know, but stay away from that. One of the things I've always wondered about is when you have so many gliders on the ground and only so many tow planes, and where you have weather changing constantly. How is the starting order and grid determined, and what are the advantages or disadvantages, say, launching earlier? and not having to sit back in the sun on the ground versus launching later. Does that even really give you much an advantage either way? Well, because of the way in the early days, as I understand in racing, you could actually pick your start time. But these days, at least at this nationals, but I've heard this at others, you basically are given a number, you know, like 12 is a one, one through X. And then at the person who's number one on the first day, they would launch first and then the, everyone else in sequence after that. But then that person would then be the last person to launch the next day. And so that way, you know, it's this very set um, number set and change order so that it's supposed to eliminate the you know advantages or disadvantages of, of being first or last. So that okay. doesn't matter okay. too much. And we all launch at the same time that this CD Rex basically says, you know, when we're all going to launch. So we're all banking out there for the same amount yeah. of time we all have to be out there because you know he's going to call you know you have to be ready to, to push your ship out and get going so not really any advantages in that it's more in the start uh start time and how you want to okay. today well speaking of launches on race day are there predetermined zones or altitudes where gliders have to get off tow or just looking for a place to loiter or climb waiting for the start so up at Siskiyou County Airport, where we're flying out of, there is uh, Craggy, which is this little volcanic knoll, maybe only three, four miles away from the airport. That typically would be the drop-off point. So you get nice, fast cycles of you know towing people up there. Well, the days that it was weak, that wasn't working at all. So we had the tow-to-gun site, which is now like 12 miles away. So of course, that greatly lengthens the the uh, cycle time to get everyone up. So therefore you would have to launch sooner just to get through everyone, to get them over there, you know, to make sure everyone's at least launched and not falling out and then open up the, the start gate. So that's how it worked there. I mean, other places that are close or a place with no uh, geographic um, trigger point like Uvalde or any place in the flatlands, you know, it would just be, can, can the people stay up? Did you have anyone drop out while they're waiting to start the race? Like not being able to stay at altitude? Yeah, we, we actually had the Montague uh, uh, local airport was a relight point in case because that was like in between us and, and the gun site starts. So if you couldn't make it back to the Siskiyou County Airport, you could land at the Montague Airport and then we would relight you from there. So yes, okay. that and was a possibility. No penalty for that then? Correct. No penalty for that. So over the course of several days of racing, the difference between winning and not winning, did it come down to small tactical details or technique stuff? Well, that's a good question. So, of course, you're trying to always improve yourself, we would look at there was one day where we came back last leg. You could have come straight across the valley to the last turn and then back to the airport, or you could take a roundabout way, but under clouds you know, to accomplish the same thing. So we took the roundabout way, you know, and it definitely cost us some time, but it was definitely safer because we were under, you know, clearly uh, some producing clouds. But that cost us like like 90 points or so. That was a significant, it was a significant hit uh, for us. But we kind of we kind of knew that might happen because the other way we just felt could it could have even resulted in a larger loss. But because we were on our own, and not with the main gaggle. The main gaggle went that way, and so they kind of helped each other out because you're able, you know, have see other gliders, you know, within a couple miles to find out where the lift is. Right. This is a well-known, you know, strategy. You're supposed to stick with the gaggle if you want to kind of keep your uh, place on the score sheet. But we yeah. decided to break up, um, on that time. So that was a strategic uh, 
decision that, that did cost us. On other days, on harder racing days where we're just really circling up in like 10 plus knot average climbs, it's more of, well, when do you want to leave? And so if you left a little late, one more circle or two more circles, then yeah, that can cost you, you know, 10, 12 points. But we also saw that there were two times, again, being the leader, we're trying to be a little bit more conservative to make sure we make it back. So we chose to also take that hit, uh, but also to be able to make sure we could uh, come back at even faster speed. So I have one last question as far as the racing goes, but is there any advice you have for recreational pilots out there that maybe want to get into racing, but they found it to be, you know, a little intimidating or they just weren't sure how to even get started? Do you have anything that you would suggest that they could do? Absolutely. I mean, as I was in the same position in the early 90s with my LaBelle, and so I would go to the Avenal uh, Clubs contest in the spring and it was a very friendly contest and there weren't as many rules, uh, but it gave you a great sense of, okay, this is the pace, this is the rhythm, you know, know your flight computer. Uh, obviously, the mo- one of the most important things is be competent and safe and comfortable in thermaling with other gliders. Because at your club or wherever you normally fly, maybe you fly with one or two gliders uh, in the thermal, but in the contest, you could easily be in a thermal with five, six, 10, you know, 12, 15 gliders. We were probably the most crowded thermo we had, maybe had six or seven uh, waiting for the start. So, you know, it's if you haven't done that before, I mean, it's beautiful to watch, but of course you always have to be on alert to avoid a, a collision, but keep your speed up so you don't stall and, you know, drop to the, drop to the circle, which would be really bad. So yeah, sign up, uh, talk to other experienced pilots um, and uh, give it a go. And I, I've heard that in a lot of the competitions, sometimes there's a couple spots open or there's some two-seaters that, you know, other race pilots would be more than willing to let you ride along. And that's probably a great way. It's, well, it's kind of what you did for this one, but. Yeah, uh, I know that they do that. Hank Nixon does that on the East Coast. In fact, I think he wrote an article in Soaring Magazine uh, just a couple issues ago about that. And slightly you know off topic here is it's just surprising to me how many high performance two-seaters there are in this country that so few people do that with right you know this i don't know probably 50 or 60 duodiscuses dg 1000 uh asg 32s in the country probably even more than that but you know so few of them show up to these kind of events you know with with uh, mentoring other pilots i just encourage anyone who has that to you know, either share one or, or go to a contest and uh, and do that. Oh, absolutely. I think it's a great way to learn. I do want to thank our longtime sponsor of the show. We are so honored to have the support of the Southern California Soaring Academy. They are doing meaningful and almost monthly now nonprofit outreach work with local area veterans and also young people in STEM programs at their top-notch glider port facility located just outside of Los Angeles there in the high desert of Southern California. They also have a fantastic flight school there, and they are continuing to turn out great glider pilots every month. If you'd like to donate to their nonprofit initiatives or learn more about their flight school, please pop over to the website at soaringacademy.org or check them out on Instagram at Soaring Academy. We were talking in the pre-interview, and you had talked about doing some pretty interesting wave flights there in the Sierras in California. Can you take us through one or two of those flights and what stuck out for you? Yeah, the, there was a period in my life, my soaring career, from about 2003 to 2008 when I had the ASH-26E single-seat motor glider that I did a lot of Sierra wave soaring because it was a very uh, suited ship for that, could self-launch, self-retrieve, and had good high-speed performance. So probably the two most memorable flights for me that um, using that ship, because uh, I actually haven't done it much since then other than the wave camp uh, Minden wave camps. In 2004, I had the uh, March 2004, the 1,024 mile flight, which at the time was the longest soaring flight in the U.S. And I averaged about 120 miles an hour for eight and a half hours. Wow, nice! I mean, I felt like I had I felt like I've been plugged into a wall socket because the whole time <laughs> I'm, you know, you have the stick full forward, you know, just trying to keep up the average you know, which at altitude is about 110 knots indicated to not go over flutter speed, but you got to modulate that a little bit, you know, depending on, you know, your altitude. So 
So all I'm looking at is the Lenny on my side, the airspeed indicator, and the altimeter. And so you're just trying to keep that. It was a, it was one big live video game. Wow. So you keep the altimeter at about 17.4, keep the airspeed about 110, and keep the Lenny, you know, off to your left about half a mile. And, and that nice. And just screaming the whole way. It was just amazing. <laughs> that was, I wrote that up in, in Story Magazine. It was just amazing. But the other flight, which I hadn't written up, but oh, it's one of those, those stories that just gets verbally shared, and you'll understand why when I tell it here in a moment, was a 2006 flight with another ASH-26E pilot whose ship broke up in flight oh. over Reno, hmm. but he parachuted down and lived. So I was flying from the north. He was flying from the south, I think from Inyo Kern. Um, and then when I lost contact with him, excuse me, I was talking to Reno uh, Air Traffic Control, and I asked about the other uh, ship, and they said, we have lost radar contact with him, and we believe he is down. Oh, wow. So, God, so I just immediately headed for Minden, landed, hopped in the car, and somebody told me that, yeah, he's he's in um, Washoe Emergency. So I drove up there, and so I'm in the emergency room with the pilot, and he actually was in pretty good shape. He was beat up pretty well, but he had parachuted down. So I'm standing there and then I get a call from his wife and he's from the Southern California area. And she said, there's this guy who has his wallet and can I go pick it up? And I go, okay. <laughs> so I drive over to the DHL office at the airport and the guy hands me the, uh, my friend's wallet and says, I found this on my lawn. Oh, wow. Well, it had come off the pilot at altitude and had dropped what? three miles down mm. to this guy's front yard with all the credit cards and ID still in it. Oh my. So I take it back to my pilot in the ER and I told him, you know, today you are the luckiest guy on earth yeah. to be alive and get your wallet back. Yeah. <laughs> so what happened? So what, what we could, what we reconstructed was basically, so he was climbing in front of a Lenny and Purely by coincidence, I have this picture because I was coming from the north. I took a picture towards Reno and you could see this one lenticular, but this one lenticular has this kind of cap on it, which extends out over the front of the lower part of the lenticular. So he went, he was climbing. He, he slowly starts getting into the upper cap, but he doesn't know that the cap's there. Right. And at first he thought his canopy was fogging up. And he realizes it wasn't, and he was getting into the lenticular. He switches on. He had an old, this is back in 2006, an older-fashioned turn and bank, which required a fair amount of electricity, didn't initialize. And during this time, basically, he oversped, his stabilizer fluttered, and then he said he you know, pulled the canopy and uh, bailed. Wow. But when I looked at the wreckage, the canopy frame was still attached to the ship and his boots were still in the cockpit on the oh, rudder pedal. Wow. He was shot through the canopy. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so it was, you know, and, and it's a wave day. So it's blowing like heck on the ground. And, you know, uh, who, who's the parachute packer? Uh, Phil, uh, anyway, the guy who uh, packs a lot of parachutes around here and has that, that kit. Anyway, he said, you know, if you bail out on a wave day and you, know, you got 30, 40 knot winds on the ground, you're going to get dragged to death. Yeah. So oh my goodness. he was lucky. He landed. The parachute collapsed immediately and he landed like near a golf course. So there were people there. This is Reno. Any other place on the backside of the Sierra, he would have been toast. Yeah. But he yeah. landed in a civilization. And so. Wow. You know, that reminds yeah. me of a crazy story you told me and that happened to you. And I, I don't want to give it away, but. We have saved it for the last part of the interview. So can you tell me about that? Well, I think you're referring to my being sucked up into a thunderstorm, which I think I wrote about that in 2000. And, oh, well, that's right. I, I wrote about that because because of this, of the last story I told and the fact of, you know, being IMC and all that. So instrument meteorologic, meteorologic conditions. So I decided to write about it because up until that point, I had not told anyone. I was felt embarrassed about it. And I, I thought, you know, that's not the kind of thing I want to share. But after this happened to this pilot, I thought, you know, I think it's better just to share what happened. So 
I wrote about that and it became one of the most, it became the most in-demand article I've ever written. It was republished in Germany, South Africa, and I think in the Australia uh, Soaring Magazines. So yeah, the, the short story of that is that I was flying the same ASH 26E in 2005, I think, 2004, uh, in central Nevada by myself. And it was a good day and trying to do a thousand K triangle. Uh, but near Winnemucca, I hadn't been making good progress, but then I see these and it's forecast to have isolated thunderstorms, which for those of you who fly in central Nevada is actually the ideal forecast, just enough to have, you know, some towering queue, maybe a little overdevelopment, but you know, not these Kansas sized, you know, 50 mile wide thunderstorms, but the lift rates can still be quite impressive. So I'm. I see this one particular cloud ahead for it, and sure enough, you know, start getting a good climb. And as I'm getting towards the base, I start heading towards the edge, and I happen to hit through later uh, analysis of the flight log a thirty-knot updraft. So, whoop, wow, I got sucked right into the cloud, and I I still distinctly remember looking that the scene of looking out. It's just like in an airliner, you know, when an airliner goes up and you go through the clouds, it appears to be far away. And all of a sudden, boom, you're in the cloud. Oh. Mm. And for the next two and a half minutes, I'm in the cloud. And if you read any of the AOPA or watch any of the videos, it's kind of like, well, you know, after about two and a half minutes, that's typically when people get into the spiral dive and they pull the wings off and they die. You know, so I'm, I'm going through my head going, okay, I have no artificial horizon. And basically this article from when I was a teenager came back into my head and it's, you know, you're only going to be turning left or right. So push one way or the other, and you can tell by the G forces, whether or not you pick the right way to, to be turning less. And so I did that and I basically, you know, could feel that less G's I pull up. And then when I slow down enough, I throw out the gear and the, the flaps and the dive brakes and fall back into another spiraled up, but this time just hoping I can, you know, come out the bottom of the cloud. But of course I'm still in the thermal. So I think my net descent rate was like 300 feet per minute or something like that. Mm. Anyway, eventually at the bottom and uh, then stow everything, fly another four hours back to Tonopah land, spend the night, uh, come back the next day uh, to back to the house and then tell my wife about the incident. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that had to be the longest, two and a half minutes of your life. I mean, wow. Yeah. And so people ask me, you know, well, what's your advice? And I said, well, first, you know, don't get sucked in first. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> sarcastic, but obvious. But the second thing is if it does happen to you, you have to keep your head because it is, I, I could just feel the panic was right there inside of me, but you can't because if you panic, then, you know, you're not thinking and your brain is the only thing that's going to get you out of this. Yeah. So you have to just, you know, in this case, it's in the article, you know, this, this idea of pushing left to right on the stick, feeling the G forces, and then, you know, slowing it down. Somebody else had written about it and they were in a 126, a 126. So they kicked it into a spin, you know, which is actually a stable condition, but the 26 E motor glider is not uh, recommended to spin. So well, what I found interesting about the story is you said the cloud looked, you know, a good ways away. And then the next thing, boom, you're in it. I mean, it happened so fast. And when I circulated the draft of that article to several people, one of whom was Gavin Wills, he said, yeah, when you do the math, if you're in a strong thermal, I mean, even 12 knots or so, and you do the math on one circle, I mean, that one circle could take you up, what, you know, 600 feet, you know, 500 feet. So what appears to be fairly far away, right. you know, you could be there, you know, in the blink of an eye. And that, that's with a 12 knot thermal, not a 30 knot thermal. Wow. That's insane. So do you have a link I can put in the show notes that they can read your story on this? Cause this is like, yeah, it was, I'm actually, uh, I pulled that up. It's the it was the 2000 December 2005 issue of Westwind, which is our regional uh, was a regional soaring um, publication here. So I'll send it to you after after the call too. But it's it's a PDF file. All right, it's, great. It's, it's also in Soaring Magazine someplace else too, but I don't have that one. 
All right. Handy. Yeah, good stuff. Wow. Okay, let's have some fun and our famous soaring lightning round. You've probably heard about that. Okay. Go ahead. Asked you some questions, and uh, you can give me an answer, or if you choose, you can All right. pass. All right. Yeah. All right. Money, no object. What is your dream two seat, twenty meter racing ship? I would take an ASG thirty two uh, with just the engine bay and put in a jet engine. And I've already budgeted this. this uh, thirty gallons of gas in the wings. That's it's the anti ecologic machine, but man, it would have great crews. Oh, wow. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay, same question, but only a single seater. Any type. Uh, actually, I'm not. There's really nothing on the single seat front that is interesting to me. Maybe the Duck Hawk because of its 200 knot red line. But I'm, I'm, I very much enjoy two seaters. So, yeah, I'm, if I never fly another single seater in my life, I don't feel that's a loss. I, I enjoy right. two seat flying. If you had a week and five or ten grand burning a hole in your pocket, where in the world and what glider port would you want to go to? Oh, boy, that would be cool. Uh, COVID stuff aside, I'd want to go to probably either to, to do something on the Andes. So Shos Malal, I'm probably hacking that, you know, where they do the uh, Perlan flights and a lot of the wave records. Or Vitacura, which is the Santiago uh, Gliding Club. I flew there once. Um, just somewhere on the Andes. Nice. Yeah, that would be cool. Someone that you personally know who you really look up to as a mentor or a teacher in soaring or racing. Well, that would have to be Rex Mays. I mean, I've, I've been at the Williams operation for over 15 years, and he's taught me and a lot of others so much about not just soaring, but the whole aviation complex that soaring lives in, you know, the FAA, ATC, uh, unspoken business complexities. And, you know, he had a repair shop before he apprenticed Danny, and, and now Danny's running the repair shop. And you know, he would just tell me these stories of all these ships in the <laughs> repair shop. And Danny tells me stories too. And so, but, oh my God. So yeah, definitely Rex. He's, uh, he's got just, it's not just about soaring. You know, it's the whole personalities and infrastructure and all that stuff. He's, he's, he called me on some stuff <laughs> that you know, I've done that. You know, I, I appreciate him calling me on that. That's, that's good. So similar question, but this time for a glider pilot, you don't personally know, but whom you look up to for whatever reason or accomplishments or maybe someone you'd really love to go flying with in a two-seater in their home country? Uh, wow. So probably somebody who's living would be Sebastian Kawa. He's just amazing, of course, as a, as a, as a pilot. But actually, my inspiration for long-distance flying and the way I write about it is Wally Scott. Uh, for the younger people, he was in the 60s, a great cross-country pilot in ASW-12, was on the na uh, several nationals and all. But he just loved long-distance flying. But the way he would write about it was just so insightful as to his you know, decision-making and all. I would just read and reread his stories. It was, it was fantastic. So what's the coolest YouTube you've seen lately? Oh, uh, the SpaceX super heavy launch and landings. You know, that is... To me, what SpaceX is doing is just that's cool aerospace magic. That is, yeah. I can't. I I will never. Well, maybe not never, but I, I do not tire of watching those those landings and the takeoffs. Of course, launches we've all seen. Yeah. To come back and land. That is just amazing. I was actually just watching one of those the other day. Yeah, it's crazy. So, Instagram or Facebook? Well, Instagram, uh, I, I like that concept, but it beats you to my Facebook. So I'm not much of a Facebook poster, as many of my friends uh, bug me about. <laughs> What's the biggest or heaviest item in your Landau kit? Uh, heaviest is my tie-down straps, because um, they have the metal hooks and the metal, um, you know, same, same things that you would use like in the back of a pickup truck or something like that. Right. I, I tie down basically looping through the spoiler box, and then I've got these metal plates that I put on the leading edge. Uh, you know, if, if there isn't a tie-down point on the glider, then I use I use that. Gloves while flying, even in summer. I do, yes. Uh, I started that a long time ago, not uh, using glove liners, not, not ski gloves or something like that. I use right. glove liners because when I had the label, 
and I would do a low save, my hands would sweat. So the last thing you need or anyone needs in a, a high stress situation is to have the user interface change. Yeah. So by having the gloves, it keeps a consistent feel to the stick. And oh, by the way, it helps you know protect your hand from yeah. sun. Oxygen above 5,000, 10,000, always or never really needed for normal conditions where you fly. Well, I tell people, uh, we got two tanks in, in my ASH 25 and the oxygen's cheap. So I call myself an N guy, which is the EDS setting uh, for on any altitude. But I recently learned that the F setting, F as in Fox, you know, it gives you a lot more oxygen because it's actually built for the mask. So if you're not feeling good or for whatever reason, just, you know, ticket to F. Oh, nice. Flight preparation, day before, morning of, and what are the things you most commonly forget over the years? <laughs> oh, this is a favorite topic, as anyone flies with me knows. <laughs> so, so because I fly an ASH-25, which is big, heavy, and all manual control hookups, I get there the day beforehand. So I get there, I assemble, you know, God bless the, the maze boys because they know this ship and they can assemble it, you know, sometimes for me in short order. But uh, because I'm flying often with somebody else for the first time, I need to spend additional time, you know, getting them fitted, briefing them on how things go, you know, having them packed, taking care of their water. And so by do because of all this stuff, I get there the day beforehand. I used to get there the morning of, and that, that was just too rushed. So don't do that. Always the day before. Uh, and forgetting things, it's I have a checklist I go through. Uh, I don't forget much, uh, but probably the most memorable thing I forgot was there was a day in 2006 when it was clearly a 2,000-kilometer day. And I would have been the first to do a 2000 kilometer flight, but I screwed up because somehow I took off. This is in the 26E without my camelback. Oh. So I realized about an hour into the flight, because oh, it was a morning, it was a wave day. Oh, I don't have any water on board. And this is, I'm going to try to go 2000 kilometers. Yeah. So what I'm about to say is, is different. So here I am about six hours into the flight. I'm still feeling okay. And I'm thinking, oh God, you know, and I had been peeing into a pee bag. So desperate minds do desperate things. And I said, okay, you know, <laughs> what if I drink right. the pee? Cause it's got a fair amount of water. Okay. So I did. And most people, you know, I, this is probably the most public form I've ever <laughs> said this, but it tasted awful when it make me cute. So don't do it. <laughs> But, but somebody uh, told me to go, yeah, well, you know why Gatorade has all the components on it? Because that's what you lose. I go, well, now that I taste Gatorade, it kind of sort of tastes a bit like tea. <laughs> so that's one of the facts that, you know, unless you have the side-by-side live comparison, you right. probably never knew. <laughs> but I can tell you. That's kind of, I mean, take away the sweetener part and add some acid. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's kind of similar. Uh, what's your favorite soaring book of all time? Uh, the Helmut Reichman Cross Country, I guess, because I he presents a lot of concepts so clearly and simply. A lot of his graphics are still in my head when I talk to you know the co-pilot on how to optimize, like going up to the, you know, where you should be at the end of a cloud street. What would you value more, win a contest or set a record? Oh, definitely set a record. I mean, I think you can tell I'm not anti-contest. I'm just, you know, it's just not my thing. I mean, I enjoyed it, but I'd much rather yeah. a record because almost by definition, when you do that, it had to be a pretty exceptional day, which is what I look for and what I spend a lot of my time in my weather forecasting on. So Landau, you have two options, busy towered Class Charlie Regional Airport or relatively short, but probably landable farmer's field far off the beaten track. Oh, the airport for sure. I mean, I'll talk to the tower and, you know, make it a minimal impact on their, their flow, but you know, the risk of a field damage and then having your ship out of service for months, yeah. you know, on repair in case something happens. Yeah. I'd, I'd much rather, you know, make sure I know my regulations and, you know, have a few people maybe a bit upset at me, but you know, at least you got your ship and 
you just pull it off to the side or taxi off to the side quickly if you can. So you have to land out and both fields are the same surface and length, slight uphill with a 15 knot tailwind or slight downhill with a 15 knot headwind. Oh, this is, this sounds like an FAA test question. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this is interesting you asked this. So I read to like tailwinds are evil. Yeah. You know, the slope is not an issue until it gets fairly steep, but the difference between headwinds and tailwinds, you know, was, it was something like, you know, a few knots tailwind adds something like 10% to your, you know, takeoff, you know, or landing. So definitely you want to have the headwind. Uh, and I never knew why that was so until it was pointed out to me, well, Kempton, when you have a headwind and you go up, like you're taking off, you know, then you, you're getting an increased gradient. Whereas, of course, when you're, you know, coming, if you land with a tail, when you actually are having the reverse happen, yeah. right? So you have this decreasing uh, headwind quickly. So. so emergency, you have two options, jump out with a parachute or land in a lake. Well, so long as it's a freshwater lake, but I, I guess it doesn't matter what kind of lake it is. You still want to go for, go for the lake because, you know, the ship may be salvageable. If you bail out, you know, you've, yeah. you've pretty much said goodbye to the ship. What's your favorite soaring bird to follow and lift? <laughs> the one that's going up. <laughs> you know, probably, you know, raptors. I think we all see that they're obviously good at finding the lift. Although, I've, you know, seagulls and pelicans can do that, too. I was going to say swifts, but, you know, I only see swifts once I'm in the thermal. Uh, I never see them before the thermal because they're so small right. and fast. Flaps or no flaps? Flaps. I mean, now that I have a flap ship and it's, it's the way to go. But what, what we need is an auto flap add-on to just, you know, move the... To me, there's no value in having the pilot constantly move that thing. You know, there should be a real... So I'm surprised no one has marketed a little motor add-on that just, you know, moves the flap back and forth, you know, auto easily disengages, you know, so you can use it for landing flap. But yeah, because that actually, um, what's his name? Uh, Paulo did that for Sergio, the guy who sponsored uh, the, the um, Nixus. You know, he actually built one for uh, Sergio's earlier ASH-25. Oh, okay. Ridge lift or thermal lift? Well, flying out of Williams, we got lots of thermals, so I'd go for Ridge just because I don't have that much experience with it. Uh, bucket hat, cap, bandana, or stocking cap? Uh, I have a wide brim Sunday afternoon hat. Wide brim, uh, yeah. Shoes, boots, or barefoot? I fly with old Nikes. They're comfortable, uh, except on winter wave days, and I've got these big fat Baffin boots with the heated socks. Water bottle or camelback? For me, water bottles, because they go easily behind me and I, I can move them around because I got storage space behind me in, in the ship. Vario sound in sync or quiet? <laughs> quiet. There's already too much noise <laughs> in the cockpit already with, you know, alarms from the <laughs> yeah. going off. I just you know, I like to keep it quiet as possible. Spoilers on turn to final open or closed? Well, I usually have mine open because I'm, you know, on the base leg because uh, I want to stabilize as much as possible on final, especially with a big ship. So open for me. Paper checklist or mnemonic? I have a laminated list in my, sh laminated paper list in my ship. And I actually modified that for a list on my iPhone for when I was flying the 32. Oh, very good. Last time you looked at the compass? Years since it's in the front seat and I'm in the back. <laughs> yeah. P2, pee bag, diaper, or hold it as long as you can and take a pee right after you jump out of the cockpit. <laughs> Everybody should have a pee tube. <laughs> Some Germans said, you know, the most sensitive variometer in the world is a full bladder, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, tie down for the night, stuff it in the trailer, or maybe you have a spot in the hangar. Well, maybe someday the hangar, but um, I actually <laughs> tie it down because, again, it's it's a big, heavy ship. So, you know, when I'm up flying, I, I want to only assemble it once and disassemble it once. Okay. Gatorade <laughs> or water in <laughs> summer flights? <laughs> Both. 
because you need you need to replenish. I mean, you know, you've got your water, and but the salts are really important. So I have salty foods too, along with the Gatorade. Favorite single instrument in the cockpit? The Vario. Excuse me. Actually, it's the battery. The battery is my favorite instrument. <laughs> yeah. Because I've had people die on me. So but yes, then the Vario. Tinted canopy or clear? Uh, light tinting. Your favorite adult beverage of choice after a long week of racing or a long day of flying? Well, those people who know me in the last year, uh, I have come upon taking hand-squeezed Ojai Pixie tangerines with vodka or rum, a little cheap tequila, a lime wedge, and lots of ice. And Andy Blackburn called it the tangerine dream, and so that's what we're calling it. Nice. Sounds like something worth trying. <laughs> I brought like 10 pounds of tangerines up to up to Montague for the 20 meter nationals and, and was making it for people. It was awesome. Oh, nice. You were one of the favorite people there, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Kempton, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. It's been nice talking to you and catching up again. And wow, some some really cool stories there. And I definitely put the the cloud story in the show notes there so people can check that out. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me, Chuck. Um, this is great. You know, it's just, it's good to dig up these old stories and, you know, I can just kind of offload some of my, my things that I wouldn't necessarily say if it was a room full of people. So now it's just a room full of virtual people. You know? Right. Well, thank you. It's, it's, it's been a lot of fun uh, and I will, I will probably bug you again. I'm sure. You bet. Uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, let's do it again. All right. Hi, everyone. Sergio from Sorry Master here. The world will be watching for the next entire month the 2021 Tokyo Olympic Games. But did you know that Sorin has already been in the Olympics before and that it would be featured as an Olympic sport for the first time? in the 1940 Tokyo Games? What a coincidence, huh? Yeah, in the 30s, Sorin had become a famous sport in Europe, with many nations developing new sailplane types and many new clubs being founded each new day in different places. The inclusion of a new sport in the Olympics is a lengthy process. First, it needs to be chosen to be demonstrated by the Olympic Committee and the host country. Then it becomes an optional sport and only then it will enter the official Olympic program. In the attempt to make Surin an Olympic sport, a demonstration was organized by the International Olympic Committee at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. In Germany, the same country where Surin was born as a sport, in order to do so, an Olympic glider design competition was organized. The Olympic Sailplane Selection Committee met at Cese near Rome, Italy. The contenders were the German DFS Olympia Meise and the Mi-17, the Polish Orlik, and two Italian sailplanes, uh, the Aeronautica Lombarda AL3 and the CVV-4 Pelicano. After test trials with six different pilots, the International Committee selected the Miser as Olympic sailplane. The Olympic gliding contest took place in Berlin-Staten airfield and started August 4th of that year. Even without no medals being awarded, seven countries joined with competitors. Bulgaria, Italy, Hungary, Yugoslavia, Switzerland, Germany and Austria, and the Hungarian pilot Lajos Rotter, flying an Emir, made a 336-kilometer flight in just 4 hours 31 minutes, arriving at the also Olympic city of Kiel at 650 meters AGL. He saluted the Olympic site with two loopings before landing. It had been the longest pre-declared flight in history until that point, and it was performed with a respectable cross-country speed of 75 km per hour with a sailplane designed in the 30s. 
Surin was officially declared an optional sport by the IOC in 38, and it would be featured as an Olympic sport for the first time in the 1940 Tokyo Olympic Games. But unfortunately, it was cancelled due to the outbreak of the Finnish-Russian interwar and World War II. However, this made the sport even more popular. More than 900 units of Olympia Mice were produced by several nations like Great Britain, France, Denmark, Hungary, Switzerland, Australia, Austria, Czechoslovakia and Brazil. The type was commonly used for long-distance flights well into the 80s and you still can find many of them flying. However, this is not the end. In the 80s, the idea of Olympic soaring was reborn by a group of enthusiasts following Paul Schweizer's paper release entitled An International One Design Class and the Olympics, released during the 1987 World Championships in Benalla, Australia. The International Gliding Commission became interested in the idea and following the IOC disposition to feature gliding in the Olympics in the 1992 Barcelona Games, this led to a huge international effort in the 90s, with big names like Derek Pigo, Weinholt and Piero Morelli helping the organization of the selection committee. In, no in November 1989, the IGC issued a worldwide call for proposals, and in October 1992, the IGC inspected and tested six prototypes from five countries at Wellinghausen, Germany. The sailplanes during those trials were Sinat from USA, the SCD-51-2 Junior from PZL Bielsko, Poland, the Solo L-33 from Czech Republic, the Velino from the Aeroclub d'Italia, the PW-5 from the Warsaw University of Technology, and the Russia 1 and Russia 2 from the group Mekta from Russia. The winner was the PW5. However, due to great numbers of sports of the Barcelona edition, Soaring was cancelled from the 1992 Olympic Games. Only 200 units of the PW5 were produced, of which only 70 to international customers, showing a low international acceptance of the type. The project ended up more expensive than used sailplanes with greater performance. The FAI even organized in 1997 and 1999 World Air Games with a single class 40PW5, but with a low number of competitors, no World Air Games have been organized since then. Even with these attempts, this doesn't mean that the idea of sensoring in the Olympics is dead, because it's a sport with the same sportiveness of sailing, which has several different classes competing in the Olympics, and because it's about the most beautiful way to fly, just like birds. Just imagine one day Olympic champions returning from their flights to take the podium. That's interesting, isn't it? See you in the next episode, guys. You know, our sponsors mean a lot to us, and one of those important sponsors is Aerox Aviation Oxygen Systems. They are number one in portable and engineered oxygen systems and your source for FAA-approved oxygen mask and portable systems. Aerox recently introduced the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag portable oxygen system. This thing is small, lightweight, and it is super simple to use. The Pro 2 Plus is perfect for that occasional user who wants the flexibility to access those higher altitudes without having to worry about flying impaired. It's now available at Aerox Distributors and, of course, at Aerox.com. So remember our friends at Aerox, engineered for aviators. So we're at Lone Pine Airport at the Sorafari here in Lone Pine and this is day four of flying and I'm standing here on the tarmac with Mike Hagoski who flies his Pick 20B and this is his second year I believe of coming to the Sorafari 
And I just wanted to ask you, or curious, uh, you know, what was your favorite thing about your flight yesterday? Uh, I flew, I couldn't get uh, on top of the Sierras, so I flew the ridges all the way from, not the ridge, but the uh, the canyons, mm -hmm. just, just at ridge level or below ridge. And I flew, I'd have to look at the map and see, but I, I'm, I'm sure I got close to uh, Independence before I got a, a boomer in a mm -hmm. big canyon. Got up to 16.5, I think, and, and then was able to cross over to the whites. And from the whites, I never looked back. It was just <laughs> flat out. Yeah. The whites were just magnificent yesterday. Yeah, the whites are the place to be. I mean, it's, you know, the eastern side of the Sierra are pretty also magnificent, but when you get over to the whites, because there's just less vegetation, so they heat up more, I think, is part of why the whites work a little better because they're kind of a bare mo bare mountains yeah and uh yeah so when you get up over those puppies it's it's awesome huh yeah i, I, I yeah it was just cranking i've circled a few times getting up to the whites and then uh, um lost some altitude just kind of having a look at the top of white mountain and then uh, got one boomer up to I don't know, sixteen five or something or more, mm -hmm. and uh, I don't think I circled after that. Mm, wow! <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I got back here. I, in fact, I gained in a straight line. I gained. I'm pretty sure I took off around sixteen five, and I ended up in a straight line, ending up with an altitude of about seventeen five at one point. That's nice because the going across the valley is about. 40, 50 miles or something across the valley. Yeah. Something like that, depending on where you are. Yeah. So, yeah, that's yeah. pretty awesome. <laughs> well, yeah, I crossed the valley twice, and, and I had, a, like I said, I had a nice 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock look at uh, Mount Whitney. Right, which is 14.8, I think. 14.5. Four, four, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were up there, and all the people on the top were like, woohoo, look at him. Well, I wasn't <laughs> able to get, I, I, the best I could do was about, uh, 14. I wasn't able to get over. Oh, right over it. Okay, cool. A, you know, magnificent, beautiful view. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Okay, well, thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Thank Good you. luck. Have a fun day today and be safe. Cheers. Okay, so now we're standing here. We're at Dirk Darling, and he flies a DG-808S, and he's one of the Sorafari pilots who have been here for four days flying this beautiful Lone Pine, Owens Valley soaring. So yesterday, what was your flight like yesterday? It was good. Uh, I got a fairly early start, went up on the Sierra side and was able to get up after about an hour. But once I was up on top, it was uh, classic Owens Valley soaring conditions here. Tops of the clouds at 17,000, cloud streets marking all of the lift. Uh, we were able to work both sides of the valley on the Sierras and the Inyo side all day long um nice. right up until sun sunset so it was uh it was a perfect day of soaring here and i had a great time yeah you had a great day and we had a fun little uh display at the end as you often like to do is you can do some aerobatics and you're very good at aerobatics so we were we we're actually right next door where there's the uh best western hotel right next to the airport <laughs> we were hanging out in the in the pool and we say hey look look i think that's dirk I bet he's going to do some loop-de-loops. <laughs> and you, sure yeah. enough, yeah, so it was fun to see you do that. And, and, and the other dirt runway, the pattern is, and the uh, final is like right yeah, over the, the pool. Right next to the pool. pool. So it was like cool, fun to just sit there and watch pilots land. In fact, you weren't there. You had left at the time. We ended up going to the pool later. And then two of the other pilots came in and we had the radio. We told them to do a couple flybys over the pool. And there was a bunch of people yeah. there and that they went ahead and obliged. And right. everybody got a kick out of that. So yeah, it was, it was fun. fun. Yeah. 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 This is such an awesome place. Yep. Great. Well, thanks, Dirk. Yep. All right. Okay. We're here with Ethan Ronat. We're here on the tarmac standing next to his beautiful Ventus 2. And Ethan is a fairly new, a new pilot to flying here in Lone Pine. But he's had some fabulous flights so far, and you had a great flight yesterday. Today was, yesterday was quite a good day. There was everybody, just about everybody stayed up and got away. Where did you go? How, did, how was your flight yesterday? Yeah, well, actually, about half of us got away. The other half struggled in the valley like we did in the first two days. Right. So it's kind of hard to get out of the valley and to climb on top of the inversion. But once you get on top, so you just zoom up... Uh, the uh, top of Whitney, Whitney. <laughs> yeah. and the views are just spectacular going up there. Actually, 
even the climb itself is beautiful because gradually you see the lakes and you see more and more scenery as you're climbing mm-hmm yeah, you actually it's... feel like you're a super mountain climber because it's <laughs> not like one step and you're at the top. You're kind of gradually, gradually your way up. Climbing your way up, yeah. And it's it's, a, it's an extraordinary experience. It's just so beautiful. And the lift is so strong once you get up 10,000 feet. Mm -hmm. So uh, to me, this is all new and this is what I was waiting for. Cool. And it surely did not disappoint. It was absolutely uh, spectacular up there. Yeah, you can't go wrong just flying up over these mountains. I mean, I've, I've done both. I've I've hiked up Whitney a couple times, both the regular route and the Mountaineers route. Oh, and wow. when you're when you're up on those peaks, it just takes your breath away. And just between the lakes and the, river, the creeks and the roaring creeks and the beautiful clouds right. and those sharp angled peaks, it's just it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Climbing by foot is on my bucket list, but maybe I'm too old. I don't know. Oh uh, nah. that. Yeah, it's a it's a long walk. <laughs> yeah, I know. It Take looks, it slow. It looks, yeah. yeah. I'm glad it's 15 minutes and you're up, but uh, yeah, it's better to go glide, uh, soaring yeah. over it. Yeah, for sure. So. But yeah, well, thanks. Okay, appreciate you're it, welcome. Ethan. Sure. Have a good day. Have fun. Be Thank safe. You. Thank you. Thank you, Christopher, for hitting the road and chatting with some of our soaring friends there in Lone Pine, California. Also, thank you to Ethan, Dirk, and Mike, of course, for sharing your story there. If you have a story you would like to share with us, we have a great recording tool on our website that makes it super easy. Just log on to SoaringTheSky.com, click on the Contact Us, and then look for the microphone. Click it and tell us your story. Thanks for hanging out with us for another Soaring Journey here on the podcast. And don't forget, if you love what you hear, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast provider. It does help out the podcast. So talk to you in a couple weeks. Until then, stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.